be able to focus our day, our Sunday, on being together to worship God and the, the encouragement that we get from that. So thank you for being a part of this today. And thank you uh, for all who've had a part in leading us so far today. The word omni means all or universal. Did you ever, back in the old days when you had to have an antenna for your television, did you have an omnidirectional antenna? The omnidirectional antenna would take the signal from any direction, from all directions. Or kids in school, have you ever been learning or taught about omnivores? An omnivore is not like a carnivore, an herbivore. An omnivore will eat anything. Omnivore, omnivorous. There are three omni-words that apply only to God. Do you know what those three omni-words are? The first is omnipresent. This means that God is present at all places at all times. He's not confined to any singular location. God is omnipresent. Proverbs 15 verse 3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place keeping watch on the evil and the good. God's eyes are everywhere. Psalm 139, verse 7, talks about God's omnipresence. We read, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea... Even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. God is everywhere at all times. God is omnipresent. That's one of the omni words that's associated with God and with God only. He is omnipresent. God also has another omni-word that is associated only with him, and that is the word omniscient. And that means that God is all-knowing. Psalm 147, verse 5, talks about God's omniscience, the fact that he knows everything. So one, Psalm 147, verse 5, Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. God is omniscient. His understanding is infinite. 1 John chapter 3, verse 20 says, If our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. God is omniscient. He knows all things. His understanding is infinite. To give an example of how omniscient God is, and to the extent of His knowledge, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 30, But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. That's pretty extensive, isn't it? God even knows the number of hairs on your head, and it's not just your head. It's every other head that's walking around right now. God knows those numbers. God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. His knowledge is infinite. His understanding is infinite. In Psalm 147, verse 4, He counts the number of the stars. He calls them all by name. And that's not just a handful of stars. That's more stars than we even know or can even count. Grant's helping us to get satellites up there, telescopes up there in space. 
to see more of them. And every time they put another one up there and turn it on, there's more than they knew about them before. But God knows. And not only does he know the number, he knows them by name. His understanding is infinite. God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. God is omniscient. And then the final one is a word that I have trouble with because I don't say it right, I've been told. He's omnipotent, omnipotent, or omnipotent, all power. God is omnipotent, and the scriptures are clear about that. Jeremiah 32, verse 27, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? That's the same question that uh, he answered with Abraham and Sarah that Joseph just read for us. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. Is anything too hard for the Lord? The answer is rhetorical, no, because God is omnipotent. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 26, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 26, when Jesus' disciples are uh, amazed at the difficulty in which it would be for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, he said, with men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. God has all power. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. And it just outright says as much in Revelation chapter 19, verse 6. In Revelation 19, verse 6, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. God has all power. There's nothing too hard for the Lord. But even though God is omnipotent, I want to tell you this morning that there are some things that he cannot do. God has all power. Nothing is too hard for the Lord, but the Bible is very clear on some things that God can't do. Now, this isn't a contradiction. There are things that God can't do, not because they're too hard for him to do. To his there are some things that God can't do because if he were to do them, it would be contrary to his nature. And as a result, he can't do these things. And this morning, I want to spend some time looking at these things that God can't do. But before we jump into the lesson, I want to tell you, this is not just an academic discussion. This just isn't some kind of trivial discussion where we say at the end of the lesson, say, oh, that's neat. I hadn't thought about that. That's a new thing. I, you know, maybe I ought to think about it. No. These things that we're talking about this morning that God can't do, they're very important for us to understand because they have practical implications for how we live our lives today by understanding the things that God can't do. They impact our relationship with Him. And we need to understand some things that God can't do. Even though He is omnipotent, He has all power. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. There are some very clear things that the Scriptures tell us that God can't do. So what are they? First of all, the scriptures tell us that God cannot be tempted. In James chapter 1, verse 13, you know this passage, James 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when, he, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth. God cannot be tempted. And if God cannot be tempted, then we must conclude that God has never sinned. 
You can't sin unless you're tempted. God has never sinned. God can't be tempted by evil. Why is that? Why can God not be tempted by evil? Because God is good. And what is sin? Sin is a transgression of God's will. John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Whoever sins transgresses also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. What is sin? Well, it's not something you're born with. Sin is something you do or you think that is contrary to God's will. And so God, if He were to sin, would be doing something that God's not going to do something against His will. And so He can't be tempted to do something against His will. Back to the idea of tempting. Each one of us is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and is enticed. I'm tempted when I'm tempted to follow my will instead of God's will. That's how sin works. I'm drawn away by my own lust and enticed. God can't be drawn away from it by his own lust and be enticed because his desire is for good and good only. God can't be tempted. And as a result, God can't be tempted to sin and he's not going to tempt us to sin. God can't tempt us to sin. What does that mean? What does it mean for us that God can't be tempted? It means that God doesn't want us to sin. His will for you is not that you sin. His will for you is that you be pure, that you live according to His will. He can't be tempted, and He's not going to tempt you. He wants you to live lives that are dedicated to Him. He won't tempt you to sin. God cannot be tempted. Furthermore, there's something else the Scriptures tell us about God, and that is that God cannot change. God cannot change. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6 says, For I am the Lord, I do not change. God can't change. God can't change His characteristics and His traits. James chapter 1, verse 17. James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom... There is no variation nor shadow of turning. God doesn't change. What does that mean? That means that God is the same as He has always been. Chapter 3. God does not change. In fact, Hebrews chapter 13 verse 8 says it exactly that way, doesn't it? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God doesn't change. That's important. That means that for us, that we're dealing with the same God that people throughout time have dealt with. We're dealing with the same God, for example, that people in the Old Testament dealt with. Now, there are a lot of people today that might suggest that God has changed. That God is not like He used to be in the Old Testament. Back in the Old Testament, when people did wrong, He got really mad about that, and He punished them for that. But not today. God has changed today. He's softer, He's gentler, and He sort of just turns a blind eye to sin. You live like you want to live, and that'll be okay, because God's changed. He's turned over a new leaf. It's not the same God that we used to have in the Old Testament. God cannot change. Jesus is the same to yesterday, today, and forever. The Lord God changes not. 
That means the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. And what God thought about sin and evil and wickedness in the Old Testament is exactly the same as He thinks about it today. And the, what, well, the punishment for sin in the Old Testament will be the punishment for sin in the New Testament. God punishes sin. We need to understand that. If God doesn't change, then we're dealing with the same God. And so we need to behave accordingly. We need to understand from the Old Testament what God thought about people who didn't obey Him. We need to understand from the Old Testament what God thought about those who did not operate within the bounds of divine authority. I'm thinking about Nadab and Abihu and others who did not respect God's authority and operate within that authority. What God thought of them in the Old Testament is the same that He thinks about us today when we don't operate within the bounds of authority. We need to understand what God thinks about those who lack faith and those who complain. I'm thinking about the children of Israel and the ten spies and those encounters of the Old Testament where people lacked faith and they complained. We need to understand what God thinks about those who compromise. I'm thinking about Balaam and his compromise as he wanted to go get that reward from Balak. And other stories we could look at with compromise. We need to understand what God thinks of those who are not true and faithful to Him. We could go on and on. But the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. Why, after all, do you think that we have pages upon pages upon pages of God dealing with people? Why in the world would we record those? Would He record those for, in history and have over half of our Bible with things talking about a God who's changed and who's different now? Why would He record that for us? In fact, the Scriptures tell us He recorded these for us because He doesn't change. And His expectations of us are the same. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it was written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Look at verse 11. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Those were our examples. And it's no example if we're dealing with a different God, is it? There are examples because God doesn't change. God doesn't change. Now it doesn't mean that God's expectations of His people doesn't change. And his law doesn't change. The scriptures are clear about that. Colossians chapter 2 and other passages are clear that God's laws and his expectations of us are have changed from the Old Testament. But God's character doesn't change. 
God does not change. And that means we're dealing with the same God. Note also, this doesn't mean that God can't change His mind. Exodus chapter 20:32 and other passages talk about God changing His mind. You remember Moses was successful in changing God's mind about destroying the people of Israel. In Exodus 32, verse 14, so the Lord relented from the harm which He said He would do to His people. God has changed His mind. But God's character doesn't change. God's character doesn't change. We need to understand that. And that brings us to our next point. God cannot lie. God does not change. And when God makes a promise, you can take it to the bank because God cannot lie. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18 says this very clearly, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. God cannot lie. John 17, verse 17 tells us why. Because Jesus, as he prayed, said this about God, his word is truth, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. God can't lie. When he says something, it is the truth. When he makes a promise, you can take it to the bank. That has implications for us. For instance, when God makes a promise to reward us, He's not going to lie about that. He's not going to change, and He's not going to lie. God's Word only... We've heard stories of people who made business agreements with others, only to have them renege on those agreements when it came time to pay. It's not that way with God. We can have complete trust in God that He will reward us for being faithful. He does not lie. He cannot lie. And this is the confidence that people throughout time have had in God and His Word that allowed them to live lives of faithfulness. For example, in Hebrews chapter 11, back to Sarah, she laughed initially, but she believed God's promise. It says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11, by faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed. And she bore a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Ultimately, Sarah did believe that God cannot lie. And she judged him faithful. And that's the attitude that all faithful people have to have. And so God cannot lie. When He tells us something, when He makes a promise, we can take it to the bank. Titus chapter 1 verse 2 says, In hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised before, the world, before time began. God cannot lie. We need to have faith and confidence in His promises. And this should be very comforting to us. It should be very comforting to us to know that God has made His promises Phenomenal, incredible promises. But he can't lie. If he makes you the promise, you know it's true. You know it's good. You know it's trustworthy. We can trust that God will reward us for being faithful. But there's another aspect of God's truthfulness that isn't quite so comforting. And that is God's promise to punish sin. You know, he's made a promise that he'll punish us for being faithful. But just as valid as that promise is, so also is the promise to punish sin. God can't lie about that promise either. We need to understand that. In Romans chapter 14, in Romans chapter 14, verse 11, God makes a promise. 
as it's, I live, God, so then, Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. God's made a promise. He's going to judge us according to how we have lived. And God cannot lie. Now, we like to think he will hold us up on his end of the deal about rewarding us, but we, some of us might want to think, well, maybe he'll give me a pass. Maybe he'll excuse me, or he'll overlook my sin, or maybe he'll just be a little bit lenient towards me in this area or that area. Maybe he'll say, well, I know, I know that it was hard for you, so I'm going to give you a pass. No, if God's promise about reward is valid and God cannot lie about that. He can't lie about this either. Every one of us are going to have to give an account for how we've lived. God cannot lie. If God said He's going to punish sin, He's going to punish sin. God cannot lie. God cannot be tempted. God cannot change. God cannot lie. I want to tell you something else. God can't learn anything about you that he doesn't already know. God can't learn anything about you that he doesn't already know. Look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 20. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. God knows our heart. He knows everything about us. God can't learn anything about you that he doesn't already know. Psalm 139, beginning of verse 1. Psalm 139, beginning of verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there's not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. God knows everything about us. There's nothing that someone could tell God. There's nothing you could tell God about yourself where God would say, oh, I didn't know that. That's nice to know. I didn't know that. He knows everything about us. And that's a comforting thought. Feeling alone is a terrible feeling, isn't it? Have you ever been in a stressful situation? There's something comforting to be able to talk to someone about your stress or the difficulties that you're going through and so that they understand and they know what you're going through. Because after you talk with them and then someone else is aware of what you're dealing with, you no longer feel like you're alone. Maybe you got a medical test back and some, had some concerning results. What do you want to do about that? Maybe you want to talk to somebody about that so they know what you're dealing with. Certainly so that they can pray, but also just so that you know that they know what you're going through and so you don't have to feel alone. So it is with God. God knows what we're going through. He knows our cares. He knows our concerns. He knows what we're dealing with. We're not alone. God knows. The Almighty, the omnipotent creator of the world, knows what we're going through. We don't have to go through it alone. And it isn't just some things about us. It's everything about us. There's nothing about us that he doesn't already know. Finally this morning, 
I want to tell you that of the things that God cannot do, God cannot save those who deny Him. The Scriptures are clear about this. God can't save those who deny Him. 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning of verse 12. If we endure, we shall also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful. He cannot deny Himself. If those who deny Him would, in effect, be going against His nature, and this is something God cannot do, God cannot save those who deny Him. If we deny Him, He not only will, but He must, by His nature, condemn us. God cannot save those who deny Him. This is a solemn warning and a danger of denying God. And someone might hear that stated and say, ah, yeah, I feel sorry for those who deny God, but not me. I would never deny God. Never, ever, ever would I deny God. You know what the Scriptures tell us about denying God? It's not just something that we vocalize. It's how we live our lives. In Titus chapter 1, verse 16. In Titus chapter 1, verse 16. They profess to know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. It's more than just what I say. It's how I live my life. And if I'm not living a life that's faithful to Him, if I've turned my back, on what he says to do, I, in effect, have denied him, haven't I? And God cannot save those who deny him. It is impossible for him to do. God cannot save those who deny him. Does your life display your faith in God? Or in works, are you denying him? And this isn't just about how you live on Sunday. Are you denying God six days out of the week? Live for Him one day, but then live as you will the rest of the week? This isn't just what you do when people are watching. This is also what you do when people are watching. Are we living for God or are we denying Him? This isn't just something that we do in certain areas of our life, but we let other areas of our life slide. This isn't just what we do at certain times, this is how we live our lives, every aspect of our lives. Are we denying God? Living a life that denies God, there's only one alternative. God cannot save those who deny Him. God is omnipotent, but there are some things that He can't do. Not because they're too hard, because they would go against His nature. He can't be tempted. He cannot change. He cannot lie. He cannot learn anything about you that he doesn't already know. And he cannot save those who deny him. God can't lie. And he said that he will save you if you put your faith in him and if you follow him. Have you done that? Have you committed your life to him this morning? Are you living a life that professes your faith in him? by the way that you live, or the things that you need to correct. If there's any way that we can help you spiritually this morning, will you let us know while we stand and sing?